Oh, Bola Boss, you cunts. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I want to, I've got a, a little hot take this week. A historical journey hot take that I want to try and get into as soon as I can. Rather than dilly-dallying at the start. If you hear any excessive noise on this podcast, like a whirring sound or a breathing sound, that's uh, that's the sound of my, my computer on its last legs. The computer that I use to record this podcast is full to the brim and is wheezing because because I ordered I ordered a new I, I ordered a new computer lads in fucking December it's middle of February now and I ordered it from Germany custom made audio computer and it's been hell getting it here because of Brexit so the computer parts of it arrived here but then English customs lost um an essential part of the computer because it was in several packages they lost an essential part about two weeks ago so that's gone and then the company had to resend it Uh, so today I thought I'm going to have my fucking new computer today because the last piece was supposed to arrive today and then I get a text this morning from the courier saying the package has been seized by UK Customs and they won't release it unless I pay a, a customs fee which should not happen because I'm ordering the computer from Germany which is an EU country and I'm having it sent to Ireland which is an EU country but in the process of that it must move through England as a land bridge and England isn't in the EU because of Brexit so they have no right to seize my computer and try and charge me a customs tax so that's why if you hear uh if you hear excessive wheezing in the background of my computer, it's it, it's it's the Brits. I can blame the Brits for this one, lads. Brexit means that there's a wheezing noise in the back of this week's fucking podcast. So up the ra, I guess. This is this is the second podcast I've released this week. You spoiled boys and girls. Um, I released a bonus podcast yesterday because it was uh, it was a sponsored episode. So I released a bonus podcast about. The 70s elect- Japanese electronic group Yellow Magic Orchestra. So if you like my music podcasts, go and listen to that podcast that I released yesterday called Yellow Magic Orchestra. If you're a brand new listener, go back to the start, listen to some earlier episodes. This episode that I have here mightn't be mightn't be a bad start. Um so yeah. Also, last week's podcast, lads, where I did a big long ramble about about we'll say online media versus television and radio one thing I want to clear up right because I kind of so here's the crack I referred to Irish TV Irish radio and newspapers as mainstream media and I use this phrase quite a bit and on listening back I shouldn't have used the term mainstream media I should have instead referred to it as traditional media and I'll tell you why. The phrase mainstream media has a, is a toxic undertones, in particular in America, and a little bit here, but mainly in America. People who are conspiracy theorists or people who are like avid Trump supporters, they'll use the phrase mainstream media. 
And when mainstream media is used like that, it's used quite disingenuously to discredit facts and truth, to tell it to be honest. So when I was using the phrase mainstream media last week, that's obviously not the context I was using it in. What I should have called it was traditional media. And that's what I meant. That was the context and intent that I was using it in. I wasn't like trying to discredit the integrity of the news as such or discredit the integrity of professional journalists. No, what I'm saying is that traditional old school media, newspaper, TV, radio, these powerhouses that have money behind them that are traditional, they're quite different to online media. So I should have said traditional media, but I listened back and I said mainstream media so many times, like 70 times, I couldn't go back and edit it. So I'm just clearing that one up. When you see that someone saying the phrase, the phrase mainstream media, often that person's a prick and is espousing the views and opinions of a prick. So into the topic of this week's podcast, it's definitely a hot take and it's definitely historical. How I write this podcast each week, sometimes, right, and it's it's becoming rarer and rarer, especially with the pandemic. Because of the because of this pandemic and quarantine and not receiving much external stimulation into my brain and having the same four walls around me all the time, my creativity is down. My my no, my creativity isn't necessarily down because I work on it. My moments of inspiration are down. When you're a professional artist, moments of inspiration may happen throughout the day at any point. I could just be washing the dishes or looking out the window and then a fully formed idea will just arrive in my head like it was sent from the fucking heavens. And when that happens, fucking fantastic. And the skill you have to develop is write down the idea. And that used to happen quite a bit before the pandemic because I'm engaged in a lot of activities that feed my unconscious mind, such as speaking with human beings, going to the gym, experiencing the spontaneity and chaos of life, and then ideas come. I'm not getting a lot of inspiration in the pandemic. So for my ideas, i got to work hard on them. i got to work and i got to research for the ideas to come. They do come. It's just harder work. So how I kind of write this podcast is... I I take note during the week of high arousal moments, we'll say. If I read an article or if I see something on YouTube or whatever, or if I'm listening to a podcast, if I receive a piece of information and this piece of information causes me to pause or to contemplate or to have a strong emotion then I immediately take note of that thing I save the article I put it into a little into a little folder or whatever and if an idea comes alongside it or a little thread of thought I write that down as well because I know if I receive what I'd call a high arousal moment about a piece of information that's my unconscious mind telling me there's a hot take here somewhere something about this thing you just heard is is the idea is already in your unconscious mind 
It's already there and you formed it in that moment, but the language of your brain will not allow you access to the idea yet. So what you have to do is pick this thing you found, then spend several days researching around it and the idea, the hot take, will reveal itself to you. So last Friday, I just saw on on the news there was a ruling in the UK about the company Uber. And Uber are, they're like that taxi company. You can't get Ubers in Ireland, but the corporate headquarters of Uber is based in Limerick, where I live. That's the European headquarters. Uber's, you know what fucking Uber is. It's the taxi app, but anyone can be an Uber driver. You don't have to be a taxi driver. And they have Uber Eats as well, which is like Deliveroo. But the problem with companies like Uber is their Uber drivers, anyone, if you want to be an Uber driver, all you need is a car and the fucking app. And then you become an Uber driver and you get to earn money being an Uber driver, being a, a taxi person essentially. But the problem is Uber doesn't recognize their drivers as employees. Instead, I think an Uber driver is technically like a self-employed contractor. And some Uber drivers are like, yeah, that works for me, that's fine. But it's, the thing is, is that it's in a grey area with labour laws. Labour laws, laws that were fought hard for. So Uber drivers don't have a guaranteed minimum wage. They don't have protection around their working time. They don't have holiday pay. All this shit, right? They're not called workers. And if Uber don't call their worker workers, then those workers are not entitled to workers' rights. And workers' rights, that was a hard battle to get what we refer to as workers' rights. So anyway, court in London ruled Uber must recognise their drivers as workers. And the workers now must fall in line with the rights that they are entitled to as workers. And this is the ruling. And it's a, it's a victory. It's a victory for workers' rights and it's a good thing. But the, the high arousal emotion I had around that piece of information is... I was pissed off at myself for being happy about it. And I was pissed off that it was in the news as a victory that we had to be happy about because it's like I said basic workers rights are things that were hard fought for people died for these things these things came about because of extreme exploitation of humans during the industrial revolution and basic workers rights such as minimum wage uh, protection around how many hours you can work holiday pay health insurance all this shit had to be fought for so I was really uh, angered by it's like why the fuck in 2021 are we celebrating something that we shouldn't have to celebrate in the first place because I thought this shit had been won already 150 years ago but I guess not not with these big tech companies so I was annoyed by that and if you've seen my BBC series Blind by Undestroys I did a, I did a full episode on work and the gig economy as it's called and how new app-based companies basically subvert and get around workers' rights by 
redefining the language and why that's a big problem in the 21st century. And it's a tough one too because, you know, we're all stuck into the system of it. So we all use these apps. We use these apps. We use these. We avail of the services of these companies that are subverting the rights of workers by their very, their model. Their model subverts these rights. And it's tough as well as a Limerick person because Limerick is a very poor city. Our city centre isn't particularly active, we'll say. And Uber having the European headquarters in Limerick city centre improves the quality of the city centre. There's small restaurants and coffee shops and a bunch of shit that's open because Uber's headquarters are in Limerick. So it's a toughie. But it got me thinking about labour rights and unions and the history of these things. And it got me thinking of, we'll say, the big companies and corporations 200 years ago who used to exploit workers and the ways that they used to do it. And another thing the Uber shit reminded me of is a lot of companies 200 years ago used to do this this model called the company town. Like, coal companies used to do this in America. They would have the company town. And what they would do is they'd build a mine for coal or silver or whatever. Then they would build an entire town around the mine. And they would directly provide for the workers. So if you were a miner and you worked for a mining company in Pennsylvania, we'll say, mining coal. You lived in a house that was provided by the company the company owned your house you lived in a house that was given to you by them you ate a lot of your food at work which was provided for you and the company provided for the, the needs the basic needs of the workers but it removed a lot of autonomy and freedom that the workers had but it also massively exploited the workers because that now a toxic relationship develops there if you're a coal miner and the company you work for owns your fucking house feeds you all your food if you don't have that you not only don't have a job your family are completely homeless then that relationship is uh, that's coercive and it's exploitative but thankfully you know America had a thing called the coal wars like and shit like this used to happen in England too People rebelled, people died, people were shot to achieve the basic rights so that things like that couldn't happen anymore. So that workers had health care, the right to unionise, the right to not work fucking 18 hour days, the right to sick pay or holiday time and all these things that we take for granted. This was hard fought for. But a lot of these big tech corporations in particular they figured out a way to kind of return to an extent to some of these exploitative models by changing the language and stuff and it doesn't look that way and I was thinking to myself this company town shit doesn't exist anymore and then I went hold on a minute like up in Dublin like there's a massive housing crisis at the moment in Ireland a huge huge housing crisis where in Dublin in particular rent is is some of the highest in the world and people can't afford property and it's destroying an entire generation of people to be honest especially if you live in Dublin any any Irish city but Dublin in particular 
And one solution that the Irish government... So here's the thing with Dublin, if you're not from Ireland. Dublin's a little bit like San Francisco. All the corporate, all the headquarters of these tech corporations base themselves in Dublin because they can effectively launder money in Dublin. They can get away with paying less than 1% tax in Dublin. Facebook, Google, you name it, they're all here, not paying tax. And the Irish government, this is a beneficial relationship for the Irish government because it ups our GDP, it provides employment, so the Irish government allow this to happen. But effectively, Dublin's a little bit like a company town. When I mentioned there about, we'll say, in America in the 1800s, where you had these coal towns where the mine, the company mine, owns all the property and provides directly for the people. But as a result, you end up with an exploitative relationship where the quality of life is reduced for the workers. Dublin's a bit like that. But they've, they've changed the language, they've changed the parameters, so it's hard to see. So, like, yes, all the huge corporate headquarters in Dublin do provide employment, but those same corporate headquarters are a massive reason that rent is so high because they buy up all the... they buy up all the property for their workers. This then contributes to a massive shortage in the, in the rental market. You've got Airbnb. Now, I know that's after chilling out now because of the pandemic, Airbnb headquarters in Dublin Airbnb's after making shit of Dublin and then the government respond by announcing this plan known as co-living co-living spaces so the Irish government's response to and when I say young people I'm talking fucking people up to the age of 40 lads so it's you know call that young if you want people from the ages of 20 to 40 have great difficulty living comfortably in Dublin finding property uh, being able to afford rent so the Irish government's response to this was we're going to introduce this thing called co-living spaces and what co-living spaces are is it's like if, if you're a young professional in Dublin and you work in a tech company then you don't need an apartment what we'll do is you get to have a bedroom with a toilet and then you and 30 other apartments will all share the same kitchen and the same living room. It'll be just like an episode of Friends. But really it's not. What that is is a tenement. And tenements are a Victorian way of living that was considered unsanitary and unsafe. And now in the COVID environment, like these, these fucking co-living things, they were suggested two years ago. In the COVID environment now, like you can't have safety within something like co-living. People shouldn't be forced to share a kitchen with 30 people. People shouldn't be forced for that as their only option, alright? And also to still be paying ridiculous rent in order to get that. And the Irish Independent then posted an article last year where one of the developers of these co-living spaces they were challenged and someone asked them look do you do you think it's okay that f- fucking 20 adults are paying huge rent s- just to have a bed and a toilet 
or just to have a bed in some situations and then that these 20 people should share the same kitchen or share the same bathroom or whatever. And the developer turned around without a hint of irony and said, well, a lot of these young professionals that are going to be living in co-living spaces, they already work in Google and Facebook and their meals are provided for them. Their meals are provided for them, so they won't really need the kitchen. It won't matter. To be honest, they're just going to spend most of their time in the fucking office and just coming home to sleep a little bit. And the thing is, they're probably right. Now, I explored this in a previous podcast. What's the fucking name of it? I think it's called Rectum Pen Pals. But I I basically compared the modern tech office environment to the Tom Hanks film Big. I have, an, I have a hypothesis that the modern tech office environment, which contains, like face, Facebook and Google, these places up in Dublin, the modern office environment, which has pool tables, ping pong tables, a fridge full of beer, pizzas every Friday, all this stuff that tech companies do for their employees, which make the workplace really fun. These things aren't the company doing a nice thing for the employees what they're actually doing is they're fostering a relationship based on a parent-child dynamics and this also ties in with the millennial condition whereby millennials had 10 years taken off them because of the last recession so millennials are and millennial is anyone from fucking 25 to 40 millennials are we're in a, we're in a stage of delayed adulthood right I'm a fucking millennial. I've got a plastic bag in my head, lads. We're in a state of delayed adulthood. Alright, and that's what our generation is. We like comic book films. And we we fetishise toys and objects and things like that. And it's grand, it's fun, it's grand. But we are in... The delayed adulthood isn't the problem. I love playing video games in my 30s and that being okay. I love that. I think that's healthy and good. The delayed adulthood isn't the problem. It's... The economic conditions that created the delayed adulthood. It's... You're not having any children until you're into your 30s. You're not owning a house, if you're lucky, until you're into your 30s. These things, that's the bad part. Which has pushed our adulthood off by about 10 years because of the Great Recession of the 2010s. And then with Gen Z, I mean I'm not fully sure of the crack with, with Gen Z yet, but it's like... Oh, you're 12, are you? You're 12. Here's a HD video of someone in ISIS decapitating someone. How are you getting on now that you're 20? How's that going for you? That's the shit that Gen Z kind of had to have to put up with. I mean, a, at least when I was fucking 12, the worst I'd ever see is, is a an 18s video from ExtraVision. But tech offices exploit this by fostering a parent-child relationship with their employees and basically going it's Friday it's pizza Friday you don't have to wear a suit it's cool oh we've got a bouncy castle jump up and down in the bouncy castle like a good boy daddy Facebook's gonna give you some porridge for breakfast yum yum do you want your dinner daddy and mammy Facebook is gonna make you dinner so when you work in a tech company everything's provided for you everything's really fun and cool and colourful but, uh, but there's no unions or anything. It's at the expense of autonomy and rights. Do you get what I'm saying? And 
it's a really, really friendly Joe Biden version of the fucking coal mining town. The company town. It's the same shit. It's the same fucking shit. So, so Dublin is effectively a company town for big techs. Big, big tech that's laundering its money here. And it's flat out evidenced by the developer of a co-living space having the audacity to say the grown adults spending 800 euros a month to live in this co-living space. I know 20 of them are sharing a kitchen, but they won't use it. Because Mammy and Daddy Facebook gives them breakfast, lunch and dinner for free. And the office in Facebook is so nice. It's so relaxing. That you're just going to stay and work till 10 o'clock at night. And they won't leave until they fucking get to go home. I've been in San Francisco. It's worse than San Francisco. If you're in fucking San Francisco, you don't even have to, you don't even have to get a taxi to work. There's an entire fleet of private buses that take the workers directly to and from work like little kids and then the workers are dressed like children from 1992 with their Game Boys and again I'm not shitting on millennials fetishising toys or games I do it I love it I think that's healthy I'm not disparaging it and I think it's a lot healthier than the performed solemn adulthood of the 1980s yuppie we'll say for instance it's part of a system it is part of a system that's exploitative it's infantilizing it's an infantilizing relationship with the structures of power with the people that are paying wages so is this week's podcast about that yes kind of and this is going to be a bit of a stretch but it's it's a train of thought and I'm going to lead it, lead you through it um I'm I am interested in the fact that superheroes and comic books and superhero films and comic book films they're the current zeitgeist all right and they have been for about 15 years we live in a society where the one of the largest largest cultural outputs in cinema is the creation of superhero films made for and directed at grown adults that's a fact that's an observation about culture and also the same adults who are being distracted by superheroes we'll say and the artifacts of childhood the same adults are also seeing workers rights being peeled back workers rights being degraded rights which once existed being taken away on the sly through a covert exploitation of our delayed adulthood as I explained there earlier with the workplace shit so I have a hot take like a weird little full circle in history I think I can demonstrate okay how 16th century Irish folklore created the modern superhero and not only created the modern superhero but directly led to the collapse of company towns in the coal mines of 19th century Pennsylvania and the creation of the modern workers' rights that are now being sneakily peeled back by tech corporations because we're distracted by superheroes. Now, it's, it's, it's an incredibly hot take. It's fucking Forrest Gump bothering a stranger at a bus stop 
level of hot take but that's why you're here that's why you're here listening to this podcast let's not fool ourselves so a common theme in in this podcast all the time and something i'm fascinated with is the irish footprint all right the cultural footprint of the irish people we are a a small country that have had to emigrate all around the world for many many years because of the oppression we faced so the cultural footprint and the influence of the Irish all around the world is massive, absolutely massive. And I love to trace these, I love to trace this cultural footprint for good and bad. And, and I do think it's a lot larger than we actually give it credit, to, credit for. It is a lot larger. So let's take it to the 1700s in Ireland and the penal laws have been passed. Okay, the penal laws, they were an incredibly oppressive set of laws that lasted more than a century, okay? Ireland had been colonised by Britain, been colonised since the 1100s, but really properly colonised from 1600, aggressively colonised from 1600 onwards. There was a minority of what was called the Protestant ascendancy. These were rich English people trying to take over Ireland, and then you had a majority of Irish Catholics the penal laws were brought in to persecute Irish Catholics and then like some Presbyterians I think as well but mostly Irish Catholics and it wasn't really a religious a religious thing it's it's much more of an ethnic thing the laws were brought in to eradicate kill and subjugate the native population that's what it was all right the Brits wanted us dead Simple as that. They wanted us dead and gone. What were the penal laws? They were a set of very aggressive laws that meant if you were part of the Irish Catholic majority, you couldn't really own land, you couldn't have access to education, you weren't allowed to practice your religion, you couldn't hold public office, you couldn't have a weapon. Uh, A set of institutional racism with the intention of disenfranchising, disempowering and eventually eradicating an entire population. Culminating 150 years later in the Irish famine which killed 2 million people and another 2 million left. If an Irish Catholic was to violate one of the penal laws then they were shipped away. They were shipped to Australia, they were shipped to the Caribbean, they were shipped to America. Okay? So what the, the scene I'm setting basically is Ireland in the 1700s is a country of explicit and blatant systematic oppression and an insanely downtrodden people but interestingly what one of the cultural artifacts that emerged from this period in the culture of the Irish Catholic majority was a love of folklore characters that were called like outlaws like outlaw characters But the interesting thing with these Irish folklore outlaw characters that people came to love during the penal laws was they share a huge amount of similarities with what we we would call modern superheroes. So if you were part of the Irish Catholic majority in the 1700s, you could not go to school. You had no access to education. So what would happen is the Irish Catholics used to have to attend what was known as a hedge school. Um, a school that... They, they were called hedge schools because they said, like, 
It was a school in a hedge, hidden away in a bush. It was usually like farmhouses and shit, but we called them hedge schools, and it was where you went to get an illegal education. Um, Often the teachers were priests, but it's where Irish people went to learn how to read, to learn how to write, to learn their native tongue of Irish, which was outlawed, to fight the attempt to colonise our mind. You're not allowed to read, you're not allowed to write, you're not allowed to speak your own language, you're being colonised, you're being eradicated. But people said, no, I'm a human being and I want to learn and I want to learn my own language and I want to learn my history and I want to fucking have a bit of meaning in my life. So kids went to hedge schools secretly, covertly. Now a lot of these kids learned how to read on a type of book which was known as a chap book. And a chapbook was a really, really inexpensive pulp, like pulp fiction, like pulp literature. It was a really, really cheap paper book that you could purchase at fairs for fuck all money. And they were often counterfeit books as well. And some of them would be in the Irish tongue and some of them were in English. But if you went to a hedge school, chances are the books that you were reading and learning to read were these chap books which were like pirate books like pirated books but the thing with these chap books because they were a form of pulp literature the stories in them were the stories of these Irish outlaws these Irish folklore heroes right so all these kids were learning the stories of these outlaw heroes while they were in hedge school now the thing with these Irish outlaw heroes that were in these stories They would have been similar enough to, we'd say, Robin Hood. Like, these characters stole from the rich and they gave to the poor. And there was biblical themes as well. A a lot of stuff from the Bible would have found its way into the narrative of these heroes. But what made them unique too is they were specifically... They were fighting the fucking English. You're in a hedge school, right? In extreme poverty, in the penal laws... And the country's being run by this minority amount of English English cunts who are killing your fucking neighbours. Bloodshed and murder, your life means nothing. So you're in your secret school in a hedge. And if anyone catches you, you're dead. You're sent off to Barbados or off to Australia or to Virginia. So you better believe your heroes are fighting the fucking English. They're outlaws who are fighting the English landlords every single day and taking their money and giving it to the poor people of Ireland and also what these outlaws did is they they instilled a sense of of kind of justice and morality if you're living during the penal laws there's no justice there there's no justice there but these are deliberately constructed laws that exist to eradicate and disenfranchise so there's no justice there what if if you live the life of the penal laws being the only law that you know then there's no hope because you're born an irish catholic you're never going to own land you're never going to own a horse you're never going to have a weapon you can never become anything other than dirt on the ground to die so the outlaw hero instilled an alternative balance an alternative law a new type of justice and a new type of morality so that you could live life with a sense of meaning or pride or dignity because if you live life 
by just going, the penal laws have me fucked, then you can't have any meaning. Dahi O'Hogan, who, he's an academic who writes about the, the Irish outlaws of the 1700s, he said that English administration was of basically alien nature to the bulk of the people, and the inbuilt injustice of such an authoritative system accounts for the wide variety of social types who functioned as outlaws. It also accounts for the great quantity of Irish folklore which heroised those acting in contravention of legal ordinances. So from the penal laws, this new type of superhero emerges in the fucking hedge schools on these shitty little chat books, these shitty little paper books that cost nothing. So let's look at some of the, the commonalities that all of these outlaw heroes had in, in this fiction, right? In this folklore. The first thing is the outlaw the outlaw is is they're never an outlaw because they're bad. Something really horrible has happened to them in their life. Something was taken away from them. They were downtrodden and they're fighting back. So even though they're an outlaw, they're outside a law that isn't moral. They have a new code. Alright? So some great pain has fallen upon them at a young age and something was taken away from them by a big dark ruling power and they're now outside the... They're fighting back against that power. The other thing that the Irish outlaw character had was... They were supernatural, but supernatural in a way that they, it's like nature worked with them. The animals and the rivers and the horses worked with this outlaw character. The Irish outlaw character had a communication and understanding and relationship with the land and the environment that the evil English landlord didn't. And this gave them supernatural powers, which can, you know, which can be viewed as well as that can be viewed as you have to remember at that time with the English too the English in the 1700s were uh, you have to remember Ireland was a temperate rainforest Ireland was covered mostly in trees and this business you see today of nothing but grasslands that's not natural the English did that and during the colonial period of the 1700s they were clearing forests the English were clearing forests putting up pasture land, filling it full of cattle that they owned, and then exporting all that. And this is what was contributing to the famine in Ireland too. There wasn't just a famine in the 1840s, there was a famine at the end of the 1700s too. So the English were contravening natural law in Ireland by destroying or changing our landscape. Oliver Cromwell personally was responsible for the extinction of our wolves when there was any resistance against English troops, Irish Irish kind of fighters used to use the woods, the woodlands and the thick brush for guerrilla warfare. So the English would just clear that land. So what you have there too is, why wouldn't the Irish outlaw hero have this magical power that they can connect to the land of Ireland? When you have an oppressive power putting the penal laws in, clearing all the land, filling it full of pasture land and exporting all the animals. The other thing that was common with all of the Irish uh, outlaw heroes is they were chivalrous. They had respect. They were respectful to women. They were respectful to old people. They had a sense of morality. They had a sense of 
politeness and there was a manners to them. They weren't rude. They were never violent for the sake of it. They also were very well dressed. They were well dressed. They looked nice. They looked after themselves. They had a sense of dignity. And what you see there is it's like no matter what shit was thrown on the outlaw they could still find happiness and meaning and they could still have the dignity to care about something as basic as their appearance and to have self-esteem. Because again, you've got a system of laws that are trying to take these things from you. What you also had with the outlaws is they would, whenever they stole money from the English in, in their stories and in their tales, they always gave money back to the poor. And also... They never took more money than they needed. So if an outlaw robbed some English soldiers, they would only take the king's money, but they wouldn't take anything belonging to the soldier. They would have the respect to let the soldier go and say, I'm just taking the king's money here. And then they distribute that to the population. And the saddest thing with these outlaws that they have in common, they never won. They were always betrayed and they were always sacrificed. They never won. And for me, that's probably the Catholicism. It's it. That's where it borrows from Christ. Do you know what I mean? Betrayal is, is a very biblical thing. Adam was betrayed by Eve in the garden. Christ was betrayed by Judas and then sacrificed. Betrayal is a theme with all of these... Somebody that they trust, the outlaw trusts a person and then that person betrays them, usually for money, and then the English kill them. And this always happens with the outlaws. And Dahi O'Hagan says, the, the heroes are victorious in individual episodes and thus help to preserve the morale and self-respect of the downtrodden folk. But they are in the last analysis the heroes of a conquered people of a culture that's been pressed to the last lines of its defences and it's no coincidence that their ethnographic present is the Ireland of the penal laws so the sad thing about it is that even though the Irish had these outlaw heroes the penal laws were so fucked up and so oppressive that you still had that sacrifice they still lost at the end the hope was still gone so I'll give you an example of one of these outlaw heroes that would have been being read about in these chapbooks and would have been a hero to the Irish people in the 1700s. A fella called Red O'Hanlon. Now Red O'Hanlon, like he was a real person. So there was Red O'Hanlon, the real actual person, and then there was Red O'Hanlon, his legend and myth. The real Red O'Hanlon was a highwayman. He was a robber. He was a Tory. And this is, this is the mad thing. In the 1700s, the word Tory meant outlaw or robber. It came from the Irish word Toraha. It meant outlaw or robber. And when you hear in English politics today, the Conservative Party, the Tories, that comes from that. Sometime around the 1600s, I think, outlaws and robbers in Ireland were so demonised by the English because if you're an English person with a bit of money and you're trying to go along the road some Irish cunt jumps up from, from behind the bush and says give me all your money or I'll kill you and these were the Tories the Torahas so the word Tory was a huge insult and the Conservative Party in England today I don't know how they ended up reclaiming it but they're called Tories 
because 400 years ago somebody called them Tories as an insult by basically saying you're the same as those scumbags in Ireland who fucking rob us and that's why Tories are called Tories today but Red O'Hanlon the real Red O'Hanlon was a Tory he was a highwayman he was a robber but a fictionalised version of him got written about in these chapbooks that were being read in hedge schools and to the kids he was a fucking hero the fictionalised Red O'Hanlon right so he starts off his life Red O'Hanlon was born to a wealthy like Gaelic chieftain family so the, the Gaelic aristocracy before the Brits came he was born to one of these families but then the Brits like burned down all his family lands and took everything away and Red O'Hanlon had nothing because the Brits took it all all away and killed his whole family. So then Red O'Hanlon became this fucking amazing robber who'd do nothing but rob the English soldiers and take all the money from the king and take it all and give it back to the poor people of Ireland. And he would dress immaculately and he was sound to your granny and women loved him and he was funny and charming and he could talk to crows and he could get up on the back of any horse and he used to he used to he used to hunt down priest hunters and priest hunters were a real thing during the penal laws they were agents of the crown mercenaries who were given money to track down catholic priests and kill them and if you're in a hedge school and you're a kid the priest is the person giving you education giving you food the priest is the one teaching you your native language and this priest who's teaching you is in danger of being hunted down by men who are being paid to kill him in real life this was happening so the fictionalized version of red o'hanlon used to hunt the priest hunters he would find them and get vengeance and kill them and then as well with red o'hanlon he was born with a cross in his on his chest and he had a magical shirt and his magical shirt that he wore was impenetrable by bullets so the English would fire bullets at Red O'Hanlon they'd just bounce off his chest and then Red O'Hanlon would take out his own gun and shoot all the English but the thing is the only bullet that could penetrate Red O'Hanlon's magic shirt was the bullet from his own gun and then finally Red O'Hanlon died by gunshot wound and no one knows who did it but you know that it was done with his own gun which meant it was someone close to him a friend that he trusted a woman that he was riding, whatever. He died by his own gun, which means someone close got to do it and penetrate his magic shirt. And that was the story of Red O'Hanlon. And what I find fucking interesting there, that's just Superman. Superman was a rich kid on a planet, Krypton, and his fucking parents said, fuck this, Krypton is exploding, sent him off down to Earth. He's, you know, what he wants, the wonderful life he had is gone. Now he's a nobody on earth. And he fights justice with his magical shirt that bullets, bullets bounce off. And he's chivalrous and he fights the right baddies. And he gives back to the poor and helps people. It's Superman. So these stories are the template for what becomes the Marvel superhero in 1700s Ireland. Then you had another outlaw hero by the name of Brennan. And Brennan's shtick is Brennan used to steal from landlords, steal the rent from landlords and give it back to the tenants. And some of these stories, man, this like they really stand up today as being really good stories. Like there's a story about Brennan. So Brennan 
again, who's a, a robber, an outlaw, highwayman. Brennan is going along the road down in Cork, right? And he meets a peddler who's selling goods. So the peddler is a merchant. And it's the thing is with this peddler, he's not like a rich, wealthy merchant. He's just a regular Irish Catholic worker. And the shit that he's selling doesn't belong to him. He's selling like his wealthy English landlord's goods and then having to go back to him with the profits he makes from selling the landlord's goods. So Brennan anyway stops him and takes out his gun and says, give me all your fucking money. Give me your watch. Give me everything. And then the peddler, who's called the Peddler Bon, Peddler Bon says to him, look, Brennan, all right, I'm going to give you, I'll give you everything, but here's the crack, uh, Brennan. If, if I go back to my fucking landlord and you take everything, the landlord's going to think that I just fucking sold it. He's going to think that, oh, he's not going to believe me, basically. And then Brennan goes, yeah, fuck it, man, you're an Irish Catholic. You're the same as me. Of course your landlord's not going to think that you actually stole this yourself and that you weren't robbed. So the peddler Bond says to him, will you do something so that when I go back to the landlord I can prove that I was robbed? So Brennan says, yeah, fuck it, grand. Throw your jacket onto the ground there and I'll fire a load of bullets at it. So the peddler Bond takes his jacket off, puts it on the ground and then Brennan fires six shots into it. But then all Brennan's bullets are gone and the peddler Bond takes out his own gun and says, now give me back everything, Brennan. And then Brennan is so impressed with how fucking clever the peddler Bon is. He says to him, fuck it, man. I don't want to take anything. You become my partner. You need to become my partner in crime because that's the cleverest shit I've ever seen. And they do. And then the peddler Bon and Brennan become two highwaymen, outlaw superheroes who rob the English on the streets. Fucking Batman and Robin fighting crime so I told you how these outlaws how this ties in with workers rights and things like that but I'm going to get to that in a minute but first we'll have a little ocarina pause ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That was the ocarina pause, which meant you heard an advert in there. This podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. So if you listen to this podcast and you're enjoying it and you're getting crack out of it and I'm making your pandemic a little easier, just consider paying me for the work that I'm doing if you can afford it. Um, it's a huge amount of work doing this. 
make this episode obvious. That's this three days fucking research doing this. I fucking love doing it. It's a pleasure. I absolutely adore it. But it's a huge amount of work. So, it's my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. If you can afford it, please consider becoming a patron. If you can't afford it. What I'm looking for is the, the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you're listening to this and you're like, fuck it. I like this podcast, man. If I met Blind Boy, I'd buy him a cup of coffee. If you're of that mindset, then you can do that via Patreon. And it's how I earn a living. And if you can't afford it, don't worry. If you can't afford it, you listen for free. But if you can't afford it, you're then paying for the person who can't afford it to listen. So everyone gets a podcast. I earn a living. And it's just a lovely, perfect model. And thank you so much to everyone who is a patron. Uh, I can pay my bills. I have certainty. I'm, even though the pandemic has taken away my fucking gigs, I'm still able to earn a fucking living. So who gives a shit? And if you're a patron, you make that possible. Also, the podcast is independent. I've got full editorial control. I can speak about whatever I want. I can do whatever I like. Uh, This week, I had a sponsored episode. That's the first ever sponsored episode in three years out of nearly 200 episodes. Because that sponsor just happened to be like, just talk about whatever you want and we won't interfere with it. And that's incredibly rare. So that's why I did that. They paid for the the time and effort it took to do a bonus podcast. So that's what it was. I'm on Twitch once a week, Thursday nights, 8.30pm. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind boy podcast. Come along for the crack. I'm writing a never-ending musical to the events of a video game. And you can also chat with me. It's good fun. Subscribe to the podcast. Recommend it to a friend, especially if you're outside of Ireland. If you're in, like, America or Australia. Recommending the podcast to a friend is is, uh, of huge benefit to me. And thank you to all the people who have done that. So, back to the outlaws. So, in the 1700s, at the height of the penal laws... You're in hedge school and you're learning about these heroes, Red O'Hanlon, William Brennan, all these lads. And they're fucking rock stars. They're rock stars. What else are you going to do? It's 1700s in Ireland. These are fucking legends. They're the only thing that give you a sense of hope, that give you a sense of pride. These half real, half imaginary characters that give you a sense of meaning and joy and purpose against the backdrop of a system that wants to eradicate you. So what starts to happen is the kids who are learning about the outlaw heroes in school, as they become adults, they start to kind of try and replicate them. And it leads to the formation of an organisation called the White Boys. The Bokal Bana. And the thing, they're, they're a secret society. And secret societies are, are a frequent element of the Irish story. And in particular Irish uh, rebellion. Like you've the White Boys. The, the Fenians. The Irish Republican Brotherhood. The IRA. All secret societies. And it, like... Why wouldn't you? If you think back there with those penal laws, those the white boys secret society, the simple act of going to school meant that you were in a secret society. 
if you went to a fucking hedge school to simply receive your education, to learn to read, it was a secret society. The, the, sim- the simple dignity of conducting your own education had to be done in secret, as a secret society. So what was happening in Ireland by the mid-1700s was the, the conditions that would create the famine. The conditions that would create the famine. Because um, you, you kind of go, how, how the fuck do you have a famine in a country like Ireland where you can grow things really easily? How the fuck does that happen? Well, what started to happen is England essentially was using Ireland as it just wanted to extract our resources. Forests were being cut down and what Ireland was being used for was industrial grazing for cattle as such. So what happened is the, the only people that owned land were the Protestant ascendancy or English people, absentee landlords, English people living in England with huge, huge amounts of land in Ireland but them not living on it, they, they're over in England and they just have like a some cunt fucking looking after the land in Ireland. But Ireland was used as a, as a resource to exploit by a very small amount of incredibly wealthy people. So if you were a landlord and you had a huge amount of land, the tax system at the time incentivized it for you to use that land for cattle only. So what happened is landlords were just like, okay, then I turn all my land into grazing for cattle and if I have anyone living on that land who might have a little house a Catholic with a little house and a little bit of land where they're growing their own food get evict them kick them the fuck out of their house burn their house down and make them homeless because I want to put some cows there like take from them the tiny patch of dirt where they can grow their spuds and just have it cows 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 as far as the eye can see and if a Catholic steps onto that land, he can be shot. So in stepped the white boys, who were a secret society of Irish Catholic peasants, who got together, and they all they would they would go on raids at night time. They'd dress in white, and they'd steal horses. And what they would do is fight what they saw as injustices, and they'd deliberately model themselves on the outlaw heroes that they worshipped as kids they fought against the landlords if someone was being evicted the white boys would terrorise the landlord the white boys would if 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 the Brits fucking put a lot of land out for pasture the white boys would knock over all the fences and let the cattle run loose they'd steal cattle if there was debt collectors coming collecting debt from people who couldn't pay their debts, the white boys would send threatening letters. They became the justice in an unjust system. They became the outlaw heroes as a collective secret society and frightened the living fuck out of the beneficiaries of the penal laws, the Protestant ascendancy, the small minority who were very powerful now had to be afraid in their beds because at any moment the white boys could come over the fucking mountain on stolen horses and burn down their house. Now if you're thinking why were they called the white boys? Is that a racist thing? No, this is the 1700s in fucking Ireland. This, the, the, the social construct of race did not exist in Ireland in the 1700s. 
They were the Buakal Bana because they wore white smocks, which was like uh, farmer's clothing, white, and they wore it white. And they used they used violence to fight for the peasants of Ireland against the injustice of the penal laws. And it scared the living fuck out of the Brits. And then the Brits had to send over soldiers to become hunters of the white boys. But you couldn't hunt them because they were a secret society. You didn't know who was or who wasn't the white boy. So fast forward to the 1800s. The famine wasn't very kind to the white boys. You don't have time for secret societies. And burning down the houses of landlords when there's literally no food in the country and two million people are dying. So people who were lucky enough to emigrate to the United States and to get away from the terror of Ireland a lot of them found themselves in mining communities in America in particular in places like Pennsylvania in the mid 1800s and you had this huge swathe of Irish people now living in Pennsylvania mining in coal mines and the coal mining companies in America in the 1800s would set up these company towns and the Irish lads there are mining and after a while they start to realise fucking hell I thought things were going to be better here in America but this doesn't seem very nice at all we're here in this company town and people are dying down the mine And they're making our children go down these mines as well. And this is a living fucking hell. And then they start to go, maybe we should all kind of get together and bring it up with the boss. Maybe we should say to the coal company that has us mining here, that owns this company town, that we don't like the conditions. And maybe we won't work. But then when they do that... The company town and the mine that run everything have got private police called the Coal and Iron Police. And the Coal and Iron Police have got private detectives that watch the miners all the time called Pinkertons from the Pinkerton Agency. And if they try and speak up or organise, no one listens to them. Some of them are beaten to death by the Coal and Iron Police. And they're watched at all times by detectives. And then they start to go, fuck me, man. A lot of these Pinkertons and these coal and iron police, fuck load of them are from the north of Ireland. And they're Protestants and orange men. Shit, man, I thought we were actually after escaping this bullshit in Ireland. But now we're here in Pennsylvania, living on on what is effectively a coal plantation. And the police... And the private detectives are the Protestant descendancy who enforce the penal laws back home. Who fucking hate us because we're Irish Catholics. This is the exact same shit as it is back home. We've got nothing. And if we if we complain, they'll either kill us or they'll evict us. This is like the penal laws, except it's in Pennsylvania. So the Irish workers in the coal fields of Pennsylvania are now in the position where they have to do that fucking Irish thing again where they form a secret society because they're being watched by Pinkerton detectives and the Coal and Iron Police who are overrepresented with 
very anti-Irish orange men, Protestant descendancy people from back home who really, really don't like Catholics and enjoy oppressing them. So directly inspired by the white boys from back home in Ireland, the Irish miners in Pennsylvania form a secret society called the Molly Maguires, who are basically the exact same thing as the white boys, who follow the exact same code and ethics and ideals and virtues as the Irish outlaw superhero folklore character. And the Molly Maguires begin to adopt the exact same tactics. The tactics that the white boys used back in Ireland against landlords, now they're using them against the owners of the company town that they work for. So they have this secret organisation and they're sending really threatening letters to foremen or they're burning down houses in the night and they're organising and they're letting the owners of the company town know this oppressive, these penal laws that you have on us that make you think you can shove our children down mines or that we can work all day long and if we complain you'll kill us. If you do this to us, we're going to fight back and you won't know which one of it, which one of us it was because we're the Molly Maguires and you don't know who we are and we're a secret society and your law is unjust but we have a higher law and you now have to live in fear. And But then what started happening in the Pennsylvania mines is when the civil war in America broke out, some of the supervisors in the fucking uh, mines, they used to like sell Irish miners to the Union Army for money. So they would force Irish miners to go off and fight in the civil war and sell them for money. And this led to supervisors and bosses of the mines getting murdered and killed and people not knowing who did it. And that's when the fucking, the corporations that owned the mining towns and the company towns really went against the Molly Maguires by aggressively hiring the Pinkerton private detective agency. So this is the fucked up thing. The Coal and Iron Police, who are the police of the mining town, because this is a town that's owned by a mining company. So it's like the penal laws. The laws exist to benefit the town and the the people who have the money, but not, not the people living there. So the Coal and Iron Police are just oppressive as fuck, consisting overwhelming amount of orange men from back in Ireland. And then you've got the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who was founded by a, a, a Scottish fella, by the name of Alan Pinkerton and the Pinkerton Detective Agency were a private detective agency that operated all around America and specialised in infiltrating and busting unions for large companies that's what the Pinkertons did and they would break up strikes they would intimidate workers all this really bad shit the Pinkertons hired a fella called James McPartland who was he would have been a Protestant from Northern Ireland to infiltrate and take apart the Molly Maguires and basically accuse them of crimes whether they did it or not and identified about 20 men as being members of the Molly Maguires but the thing is too with the Molly Maguires it, it wasn't like a hundred years ago with the white boys where there's this peasant agrarian association dressing up in white completely being inspired by these outlaw heroes the Molly Maguires by the 1870s in the mines of Pennsylvania started to become legitimate and they were 
they were supporting and helping uh, organisations like the Working Men's Benevolent Association, which were a labour union, an early labour union in the United States, and the Pinkertons were trying to take it apart. The whole thing ended with the Pinkerton Agency and this James McPartan fella identifying 20 men, very little proof, and they were all executed in the largest federal execution in US history happened in 1877 in Pennsylvania prison where they executed 20 Irishmen who were members of this secret society the Molly Maguires but from that from that bloodshed from the Molly Maguires standing up to the mining towns and saying this isn't good enough you like you have to realise there was disasters in these mines where you'd have maybe 500 people dying men, women and children because the mine didn't put in proper ventilation it was real carnage horrible, horrible working conditions with no rights the Molly Maguires are one of the cornerstones of modern workers' rights in America and unions now these things unfortunately now are disappearing so at the start of the podcast I said what inspired this and the little hot take I have and the thing I find interesting is you know I've shown a credible lineage there going from 1700s outlaw folk heroes who were effectively superheroes who inspired the white boys who then inspired the Molly Maguires who then led to modern unions from Irish superhero tales and then I said now we have the disappearance of unions, workers' rights. These things are being taken away amongst the backdrop of people in their late 20s and 30s in an economic delayed childhood being distracted by superhero movies. The, the office environment of pool tables and free pizzas on Fridays, this only works on a generation who have had their adulthood delayed and who fetishise things from childhood. And if you think it's too hot a take, last year, lads, 2019, and this is a fact, you can look it up, Delta Airlines, right, ran an advert for their own employees and the advert has a big Xbox controller on it. And Delta Airlines put this advert to their employees Union Jews cost around $700 a year. But a brand new gaming system with the latest hits sounds like fun. Put your money towards that instead of paying Jews to the union. That is an official Delta Airlines advert to their own employees. 700 quid a year, lads. To be in a union? Fuck that. Get yourself an Xbox, you fucking idiot. You dumb child. Get yourself an Xbox, you 35-year-old child. That's what that is. It's systematic and it's present. And Delta Airlines dropped the ball by being explicit there. They straight up said, you stupid fucking 35-year-old pricks with your toys. Fuck unions and get an Xbox. But that's what the tech companies are doing in a much, much nicer way with their bouncy castles and beanbag chairs. It's the same shit. What do you mean you want a union? We've got free pizza on Fridays. What, you, what do you want a union for? I thought I was your friend. Why are you hurting your da? I'm your da. I'm your ma. It's the same shit. 
and Dublin is the company town. If the developer of a co-living space is able to say with confidence it's okay for 20 adults to share a kitchen because they get fed in Facebook and then the same corporate headquarters are creating the conditions where the government need to present co-living apartments as a solution that's a feedback loop that's systematic toxicity Dublin is a company town that is the infantilization, the corporate infantilization of an entire generation to strip back rights that were hard worked for and fought for and bloodshed given for them. It's stripping back those rights by dangling fucking childish carrots in front of who they perceive to be children. So there's my Biden hot take. That's a roaster. That's a roaster. That's like I said, that's your Forrest Gump. And all it is is a, it's a little theory. It's a theory. It's something I've been thinking about. And you know, what am I going to do now? Am I going to fucking boycott Facebook? Boycott Google? Don't use Google anymore. Don't use Twitter. No. You know, because I need these things for my fucking life. Uh, We're in a system here. The problem is with the fucking system. You know, it'd be nice to have the, the perfect morality to for literally nothing I consume to have any impact whatsoever on human life and to be completely ethical that's not happening lads not happening in this in this fucking society everything is dripping in blood but that uber ruling that ruling that uber workers are now actual workers I think that's fucking good that's a good thing I'm very happy to see that makes me feel a little bit better with the corporate headquarters of uber in Limerick that at least now I go, that corporate headquarters that is providing so much employment for people in Limerick and that corporate headquarters that is keeping that restaurant open and that pub open, at least now their drivers are considered workers, you know? It's complex. It's a complex situation with many layers and nuance inside it and it's not black and white like on the internet. And... As it's a hot take as well, it's it's me trying to fucking entertain you for an hour and a bit to find the most interesting story I can give you. Yart, I'll chat to you next week. God bless. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.